I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to James chapter 2, as we look at verses 14 through 26. We continue in this section of the book where James is articulating and expressing uh, traits of true Christian faith. And so today, we begin this section. We're going to actually look at this section in two weeks because this is such a weighty section that the temptation for people is to just dismiss it uh, and go over it real, real quick without letting the work of this passage be done. And I think it deserves to be meditated upon because James is not kidding. He's not exaggerating. This is the word of the living God. So, Brothers and sisters, James 2, 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. It is tough. It is difficult, it's unnerving. Grant that we would have the faith and the faithfulness to be scrutinized by your word. 
that we would find ourselves to be in conformity to it. For you have exalted your name and your word above all things. Grant that we would be found to believe truly. For Christ's sake we pray it. Amen. All right, so we've come to the most famous and the most famously controversial passage in James. This is the passage that led Martin Luther to call the whole book a, an epistle of straw, a right straw-y epistle. But let me tell you that one of the worst things that you can do is to dismiss this as hyperbolic or metaphorical. One of the worst things you can do is to flee this and turn instead to the supposed safety of the passages that we like. This passage is part of the Bible's teaching about saving faith. What does faith look like? I don't want to get political, but this week it was, it was so scandalously bad that we have as a nation, as a culture, fallen to a point where a Supreme Court nominee cannot tell what a woman is. It's disgusting. But yet worse is the problem that plagues the church where many of us can't tell what faith is. We, ban- we throw that word around, faith, 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 believe in Jesus, faith, 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 faith in the Lord, faith. What is it? What is it? And even if we can't say what it is, what does it look like? Can we describe it? So what this passage is at its core is a description of what true faith looks like. Conversely, what true faith doesn't look like. Paul, I'm sorry, James has already in this book on multiple occasions written that it is possible for one to deceive themselves into thinking that they are right with God. Brothers and sisters, that's not just something unique to this book. Paul says it on multiple occasions. John says it. Jesus says it. It is possible to deceive oneself for one to sit there and think that they are right with God, but not be. And What you could come away thinking, as some do, is that this passage is teaching that faith, again, what is faith? That's the big question. But by posing the question, they reveal that they operate with the wrong definition of faith to begin with. But there are those who think that faith is not enough to save you and that it takes your faith in combination with your works and the together they save. There are some who think that the emphasis is such on works that truly the way to do it is to leave here and just 
run yourself ragged doing as many good things as you can possibly do, and that's how you get justified. And that would be wrong. It is entirely possible to spend your days doing good deeds and for your heart to be far from God. Jesus says as much. In vain do these people worship me. For they approach me with their words, but their hearts are far from me. And when he warns that in that final day are going to come people who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these great and wonderful things up to and including prophesying in your name? And Jesus doesn't say you were false prophets. He doesn't say that. I never knew you. This passage that we're looking at here in verse 14 through 19 is a commentary on what true faith is and isn't. Back in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul says this. Examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. And here's R.C. Sproul's commentary on that verse, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Paul's words help clarify the doctrine of assurance of faith. Paul asks the Corinthians to examine their own lives for evidence of salvation. Such evidence would include trust in Christ, obedience to God, which is where James is coming from now, Growth in holiness, the fruit of the Spirit, love for other Christians, positive influence on others, adhering to the apostolic teaching, and the testimony of the Holy Spirit within them. That's the test. And in our passage today, James underscores the worthlessness of any supposed faith that is devoid of good works. In fact, we, you get a hint that this is what he's talking about. When he says in verse 14, if someone says he has faith. In other words, I'm not saying that faith itself is inadequate. I'm contesting the idea that faith can be had that's not manifesting itself in works. And he goes on repeatedly to drive home that point. Verse 19 is downright scary, but it single-versedly undermines a main tenet of, of popular theology. You believe that God is one. What's, what's that a reference to? You believe that God is one. It's a reference to the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It's the great creedal affirmation of Israel. It is in short form James's way of saying you affirm right doctrine. 
You do well. But even the demons believe. And they shudder. Okay, so there's a way of construing faith that is nothing more or other than mere base assent to facts and propositions about God. It is possible for you or me to have right intellectual affirmation of propositions about God and still have nothing other than a faith that is amounting to the faith of a demon. Demons understand and believe right propositions about God, but it avails them nothing. But that verse almost single-handedly undermines a popular notion of theology that has been popularized by a, a school up the road. A guy named Zane Hodges and what was so influential in, in, in propagating this, this doctrine called free grace where repentance is unnecessary. He makes a distinction between being a Christian and being a disciple and, 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 and no fruit is necessary. You don't even have to keep believing in Jesus. You say that sinner's prayer and you're good to go. Why? Well, Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Oh, I called on his name. I, as the song said, just said Jesus. That theology was picked up by his friend and colleague and propagated through by Charles Ryrie in his study Bible and systematic theology. So generations of Americans have been taught this notion of free grace that is mere assent. And the verdict of James is that if all you have is mere assent, you have nothing but the faith of a demon. Wow. Our own tradition, brothers and sisters, has not been immune to this. Indeed, I mean, it was just a few years ago that uh, Tulian Chavidjan was down there teaching basically this. Utterly denying repentance and sanctification. And as I was looking at this sermon, I was looking at Lutheran theology and they really, really, really don't like even talking about sanctification as something distinct from justification. Your friend or pastor may be an exception, but I'm telling you, I've read their theologies and they don't like doing it. And this is what Tulian was picking up on. That all we got to do is celebrate the fact that we're justified. Sanctification is... Eh. And of course, after he committed his affair and lied to his presbytery, he actually says, well, for me to be consistent with my own doctrine, here I am back in the pulpit. But the verdict of the Bible is that such a faith is in vain. When you see passages like Romans 10, 9, 
If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And, and even Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When you see those, they're telling the truth. But what does it look like to call on the name of the Lord? R remember that Faith in Christ, that, that thing we call faith in Christ, is referred by numerous expressions in the Bible, in the New Testament. Th think about some of, the, some of the verbs that are used to describe it. You can, say, you can speak of believing in Christ, fleeing to him, looking to him, calling to him, receiving him, resting on him, coming to him, confessing him. You can even speak of it from Jesus' own mouth in John as drinking his blood and eating his body. Remember he says that and everyone finds it offensive? But James today asks two questions in verse 14 that he repeatedly comes back to. What good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? And can such a faith save him? In this passage he's saying simply, True faith manifests itself in works. I continually have to beat this drum. No one, no one, no one in the Bible is saying that faith plus works saves you or that fruit or good works are what make you alive. Works, works, works do not result in you getting declared innocent and righteous in the sight of God. But yet the Bible repeatedly considers works, dare I say, essential. It is because works are the fruit I don't care, take any tree, any vegetable plant, any flower, any anything. The flower, the fruit, the veggie, whatever it is, it, it, it is not the source of life for that plant or tree. But invariably, that apple, that pear, that lemon, that lime, that banana, that tomato, that jalapeno, that bell pepper, that daisy, whatever it is, it is the sign, it is the evidence that that plant, that tree is alive. Which is why he asks the rhetorical question. He's basically saying in verse uh, in verse. 18, show me your faith apart from your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. He's saying you can't show me your faith apart from your works. Apart from works, what do you have? Flapping gums. The, the, the mere saying of stuff that he has just said that by itself is meaningless because even demons can confess true things. We are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves is not alone. Now, this is real trippy, okay? Uh, Martin Luther famously did not like James. Okay, we've talked about how in his preface uh, to, to, to the New Testament, he says as much. 
But here's the thing. And here's what I don't get. I don't like that Martin Luther. But I love this Martin Luther. In his preface to his Romans commentary, he's talking about how justification by faith is the, is, is the, is the grand theme of this letter. And he describes faith. And I'm going to read to you from his, this preface to the Romans commentary. And, and brothers and sisters, it essentially is, it would serve as a commentary for this passage in James. So how can he affirm this, what he says about Romans, and still have any questions about what James is saying? Because check this out. I burned my mouth yesterday acting, as my wife would say, like a big dumb animal, uh, putting molten cheese into my mouth. And uh, <sighs> I'm 45. I'm not sure I will learn. Like, Okay. Here's what Martin Luther says. Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good things incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done this and is constantly doing them. Whoever does not do good works, however, is an unbeliever. He gropes and looks around for faith and good works, but knows neither what faith is nor what good works are, despite speaking at great length about both. See what I mean? That's basically a commentary on James 2, 14 to 26. But he's absolutely right. And that's the Martin Luther we like. I like. When he gets it right like that. But, but how can we say that faith is always incessantly working? That, that, that it, in fact, produces fruit that it, we can see? Because saving faith is supernatural in origin. And James has already alluded to this as much. And, and back in chapter 1, verse 18, of his own will, that is, of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So your faith is of supernatural origin. And, and this is where our confession of faith is helpful. In the, the Westminster Confession, chapter 14 when it talks about saving faith, here's what it says in the first point. The grace of faith, that is, your faith comes by grace. It is unmerited favor. The faith that you have, which we learn is a gift of God from Romans 2, 8, and 9, is given graciously. It is paid for and purchased for you by Jesus. The grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe. So notice there's a distinction between the faith given and the act of belief that you engage in to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts. The Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life. This we confess. And so we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And we are made alive by the Holy Spirit. 
This Holy Spirit who is living, who is a person, can this sovereign Lord produce a dead product? When the scriptures repeatedly assert that it is precisely his work that brings life? So your faith, because of the supernatural working of the Holy Spirit in your life, is a living thing. True saving faith is a living thing that grows. And so because of that, we can see the evidences of it and the fruit thereof. But then the confession of faith goes on to describe this saving faith. Because it contradicts the notion that saving faith is simply mere assent to true propositions. In the second section of chapter 14, our confession says this. By this faith, a Christian believeth to be true whatever, whatsoever is revealed in the word. For the authority of God himself speaking therein and, and acteth differently upon that which each particular passage thereof contains. In other words, as you read the scriptures, if you have true faith, you will find yourself, one, yielding obedience to the commands, which is what James is talking about here, because has not the Lord commanded us to show mercy, to love our neighbors as ourselves? And the disposition of a person who has been born again it's principally found in a new affection. So you have a principally new desire, that which is to please your heavenly Father. And that's the motive from which all the good works comes. I desire to please my heavenly Father. Not the disposition of the elder brother of Jesus' parable, who was doing acts of obedience out of a slavish notion that he would earn or merit his father's favor or good fortune. Okay, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings. Once again, we don't like talking about this, but even Paul says he, he beats his body into submission because eventually he's going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and he doesn't want to be found to be disqualified after he's preached to others. We should read the warning passages. There should be a little bit of pause in our step when we read Jesus say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will be saved. We shouldn't be so flippant and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. That's where we cling in hope to the promises contained in the word. But the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Resting, receiving, and accepting. Remember how we've talked about faith is the, com the combination of three parts, knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge and assent have to do with your apprehension of right things, your affirmation of right things, but trust is always volitional. 
Trust is the practical putting into practice the confidence that we claim by our knowledge and assent. In the same way, good works, as James says, is the demonstration of the trueness, the genuineness of our faith. Brothers and sisters, true faith is living and active. I just described the word. The word of God is living and active. Your faith is living and active. Why? Because you are a creature of the word. And so, a faith that is mere assent to facts, that uses religious language, go in peace, a famous blessing in the Bible, as a gloss or a dismissal, is worthless. It won't save you any more than your well wishes did something practical for that person. But a living and active faith that manifests itself in increasing obedience to the Lord, this is how you know that your faith is genuine. And brothers and sisters, it's this genuine faith that we will explore in greater detail next week. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this passage. Thank you so much for not being willing that we should deceive ourselves, but rather you consistently give us messages in Scripture about how we can know and I thank you for the gift of grace. Thank you for how Christ and his perfect obedience and his substitutionary satisfaction of our debts has merited the outpouring of every good thing, including the faith we need to believe. Grant, O oh Lord, that we would be found genuine. In Christ's name we pray it. Amen.